0: All right, if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number one. Matthew's Gospel, chapter number one. This is obviously the first of the Gospels in the New Testament, and I think placed strategically by God's providence here at the front of the New Testament, not because it is chronologically first. In fact, most New Testament scholars regard Mark As the earliest of the four Gospels, but because Matthew does something that's fairly unique in helping us to draw the significant connections that exist between Old and New Testament. With the conclusion of Malachi's prophecy the Old Testament closes and the New Testament begins at the birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of the Son of God. Matthew helps us to see the varied connections that exist between Jesus and the fulfillment of all of the hopeful expectations of the Old Testament. It has been said that Mark presents Jesus as a servant. There's something about the genealogical contributions of each of the Gospels that signifies their, their, the, the, the perspective that they're providing on the life of Jesus. You might say, but Pastor Mark does not include a genealogy for the life of Jesus. You are exactly right, because servants don't need genealogies, they are of little significance. Very little is said about a servant's genealogical background because he doesn't find himself on that rung of society or that caste in society that contributes to any prestige whatsoever. In chapter 3, traces the lineage of Jesus back even beyond that of the Gospel of Matthew to Adam, the first man. Jesus is very much the second Adam in the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of John, you might argue there is no genealogy. However, I would argue there is a divine genealogy beginning in verse number 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so the focus of John's gospel is very much on the divinity of Jesus. You simply cannot read the gospel of John without coming away with the firm conclusion that Jesus and others, as well as the disciples, regarded him as the only begotten son of God and the fulfillment of the messianic hope of the Old Testament. The focus, it seems, of Matthew's gospel is on the kingship of Jesus. And the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1 traces the lineage of Jesus back to the various kings of Israel and the kingly line of Abraham, ultimately. In fact, the genealogy begins in verse 2, with Abraham fathering Isaac, and so on and so forth. A part of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise was the establishment of kingship In Israel, and so in the second section of the genealogy, Solomon by Uriah's wife, thus beginning the the Israelite monarchy in Israel and over Judah. Down through the kingly line and even to the exile in verses 12 through 15, Jesus' genealogy is traced back in sections of 14 and 14 and 14, noting the symmetry of his ancestral lineage. And the, and the connections that exist between both Jesus and David and Jesus and Abraham. This is the earliest indication in Matthew's gospel that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. God had promised Abraham in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15 that he would make Abram, this sonless man, the father of a great nation. That his descendants would be as the stars of of the sky and the sand on the seashore. And that those who blessed him would be blessed, but that those who cursed him would be cursed. And that Abraham's lineage would function to be a blessing, not only to the nation that would descend from his line, but to all the nations of the world. That promise finds its fulfillment in Jesus. In powerful and new ways, The blessing of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is going to burst through the boundaries of the Israelite nation and the Jewish ethnicity into Gentile territories, even within the gospel of Matthew. In fact, one of the strange ironies of Matthew's gospel is that often while the Pharisees miss it, it's the Roman centurion standing at the side of the cross who would say, behold, this man truly was the son of God. Or the Samaritan woman that would not recoil at Jesus saying, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the table, or referring to her in what most would assess as derogatory terminology. There was simply a want an earnestness to be near the Lord Jesus. It's often the Gentiles. So Jesus is indicated here in chapter 1, and then it's detailed further later in the Gospel of Matthew, to be the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham that through the lineage of Abraham the blessing of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob would shower itself even on Gentile peoples. Furthermore, Jesus is shown to be the fulfillment of God's promise to David. 2 Samuel 7, God says to David, there's going to be one in the line of David that rules and reigns over the people of God eternally. Certainly Jesus has come to do just that. He has assumed his rightful place of authority, having given his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sin and resumed it once more after three days dead in the tomb, Jesus rose again. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to David. Now, this wouldn't have worked out this way had we not had some issues with audio files, but we just looked last week at the Old Testament prophet of Haggai. In Haggai, the promise is the glory of the second temple is going to be greater than the glory of the first. The problem is that when they rebuilt the the second temple, or rebuilt the temple, which ultimately was the second temple, its glory was not much. In fact, it seemed kind of small and unimpressive compared to the first temple. Except that that second temple would come to be adorned by the very presence of the only begotten Son of God, not just the descendants of the Father, in a cloud of great glory, but the actual presence of the only begotten Son of God. There's some obscurity about the latter part of this genealogy. In fact, there are many names mentioned in verses 12 through 16 that if you go tracing them down in the Old Testament, you simply will not find. They land within that prophetically silent period we refer to sometimes as the intertestamental period. There, there is there is this continual expectation. There's this big looming question that hangs over the end of the Old Testament. They had come back physically from their exile in Babylon, but the reality was, as much as everyone hated to admit it, they had never truly come back from their exile in Babylon. Existence in the city of Jerusalem, existence in Israel after the exile was never in those days what it had been before. So while there's an excited encouragement about being back in the promised land, something is still missing. What I'm suggesting here is that the genealogy shows that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David, and furthermore, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise that the second temple would be a temple of greater glory, and that God would bring the people of God back into the land of God with great power. And indeed, that is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. From the opening of Matthew's gospel, the kingship of Jesus is a central focus. And just to sort of demonstrate the way this runs throughout the gospel of Matthew, I would remind you of the way Matthew's gospel ends. One of the last statements that Jesus makes before ascending to the right hand of the Father is, all authority has been given to me both in heaven and on earth. Jesus is exercising, actively exercising his kingship over heaven and earth, even as we are assembled here tonight. Jesus Christ is king. This is the second thing that's central to Matthew's Gospel. you see three key themes in the outline that you have before you tonight. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. A major emphasis in Matthew is the relationship of Jesus, we might say Christianity, with the Old Testament or Judaism. How do these two things work together? I think sometimes we discount how closely connected the following of Jesus was with Judaism at the inception or the commencement of the church. When the church was born, she very much operated as a sect of Judaism for a season. In fact, I'll give you a little sneak peek into Sunday morning's message. Um, one, one, of the, one of the references in the passage that we'll look at in Revelation 2 on Sunday morning refers to the synagogue of Satan. I know the slander of the Jews against you, Jesus says, and they're of the synagogue of Satan. We're going, to, we're going to get Pastor Derek talking over us. Would somebody, let them, would somebody let them know we're getting Derek? Sorry. He refers to them as the synagogue of Satan and what seems to be happening in that particular church's situation is, is the Roman Empire had said, Jews don't have to practice idolatry. Jews don't have to practice the imperial cult. And Christians had been flying under that cover for several decades. But because the church was advancing and many of the Jews were coming to faith in Jesus and leaving what was understood to be the traditions of Moses, the Jews began to say, they're not part of us and Christians began to lose cover. They lost the ability to legally refrain from the worship of the emperor of Rome. So the Jews are outing Christians and creating a scenario for them where they're now forced to worship the emperor, or they're persecuted, jailed, imprisoned, or even killed for their refusal to do so. So these two groups are running side by side. I was listening to Uh, A lecture on the Gospel of Matthew today, and and the question was asked, is Jesus more Jew or new? It was a clever way for him to say, is is this a fulfillment or an expansion, an extension on the Old Testament, or is this a revolutionary new thing? The answer to that question is yes. Yes, it's quite Jewish. It is very much the fulfillment of of the Old Testament promise, but in the fulfillment of that Old Testament promise, God is very much doing a new thing. I would point to a passage in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus says we don't put new wine into old wineskins. There's a, a revolutionary nature about what Jesus has come to do. Very much the fulfillment of the Old Testament, but the broadening of the boundaries of the kingdom to encompass men and women and boys and girls of every tongue and tribe and nation perfect fulfillment of every old testament expectation and there are a variety of ways that this plays itself out for instance jesus says in the sermon on the mount i didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets i didn't come to destroy but to fulfill and in 32 instances in matthew's gospel he demonstrates how jesus is the fulfillment of old testament promises and prophecies I'd point to some categorical ways that Jesus fulfills the promise of the Old Testament just quickly. Jesus is said to be the fulfillment of the moral expectation of the Old Testament. That's one categorical way of describing Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Testament. In other words, every moral obligation stipulated in the Old Testament, every command that is given, Jesus fulfilled in absolute perfection. This is the way Paul likes to frame the life of Jesus. He came and fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law in order that he might adequately, sufficiently atone for our sin. Jesus' fulfillment of the righteous requirement of the law is what qualifies him to pay an atoning sacrifice of his blood to cover for our sin. But for the perfect righteousness of Jesus, there would be no atoning sacrifice. Jesus' death would function to pay the penalty for his own sin in the same way that death looms large over all sinners, the deserved punishment for all of our sin. Paul is clear about this in Romans 6 and 23. We are deserving of death as a consequence of our sin. But Jesus does not die on the cross because of his sin, Jesus dies on the cross because of our sin and because the sinless one dies in our place, we stand under his blood to have our sin atoned for and our position forever changed before the Father's judgment. Jesus fulfills perfectly the righteous requirement of the law and Matthew's gospel, as with other gospels, details the perfect righteousness of Jesus's life. Even when there are accusations of disobedience, Sabbath violation, and other, Jesus justifies in plain biblical terminology the action steps he takes in a given moment. One of the things that Jesus is consistently accused of is the violation of the Sabbath. There were such strict regulations around Sabbath observance in the days of Jesus, that was often the rule they tried to trip him up with. Jesus is abundantly clear in Matthew's gospel that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, and and, and that doing what he does in a Sabbath context is profitable and beneficial. He's doing acts of healing, doing acts of mercy, doing acts of, of kindness. He explains that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, and the fulfillment of the Sabbath. In other words, we come to understand in Matthew's gospel and in other New Testament letters that Jesus has become for us our Sabbath rest. It's a note to us that not only does Jesus fulfill the moral obligations of the Old Testament, Jesus uh, fulfills the ceremonial obligations of the Old Testament. You know why we don't celebrate the Passover as followers of Jesus? Because Jesus is our Passover lamb. You know why we don't observe the Sabbath as followers of Jesus? Because Jesus is our Sabbath rest. You know why we don't celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles as followers of Jesus? Because we have taken up residence in the body and behind the blood of our Savior Jesus. So there are a variety of of ways that Jesus serves to fulfill the ceremonial requirements of the Old Testament. We we don't do blood sacrifice here. You might be encouraged to know, right? You won't find us parading bulls and goats through our Sunday morning worship service because the atoning work of Jesus is final and forever. It's It's the shedding of his blood that brings to pass the remission of Our sins, not the sacrifices of bulls and goats. Jesus fulfills the ceremonial requirements of the Old Testament as well. There is a way that Matthew demonstrates Jesus fulfilling the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament that is usually overlooked. And I want to show you this in the first few chapters of the book. If you look down to chapter 1 and verse 23... The Bible says, see the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will name him or they will call him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Jesus is the fulfillment of God having come down. He is God in the midst of his people. But from this point forward, Matthew moves to help us to see this other way that Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament expectations. Look down to chapter 2 and verse 6, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. So I'm going to call from Bethlehem one who will shepherd my people Israel. And then in chapter 2, verse number 15, the Bible says he stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son, which is a quotation from Hosea 11.1. One. Now think about this. you got prophecy in Micah, prophecy in Hosea. And Micah says that the leader you've been looking for is going to come from Bethlehem. And Hosea says, I'm going to dispatch my son by implication, this messianic figure stands as the representative head of Israel out of Egypt. Well, how can these two things happen simultaneously? How can this be a possibility? Well, I'll tell you. When Jesus is born in Bethlehem, there's a very bad king in Israel, and his name is Herod the Great. He kills all the infants two years and under in the hopes of killing this one who has been born under such special circumstances, expected to be the king of the Jews. And when this persecution arises, Mary and Joseph pack up their belongings and they head off to Egypt to seek asylum from the threat of death at the hands of Herod the Great. But after a season, in fact, even in the childhood of Jesus, Herod the Great dies, and his sons assume his leadership, only having separated the territory of Herod the Great into three districts: Idumea and Judah, and, or Judea and Galilee. Jesus and Joseph and Mary find their way coming up out of Egypt and establishing residence for themselves in the city of Nazareth, also prophesied in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. So God is orchestrating the very steps of Jesus, each step along the way, such that every prophetic expectation of the Messiah is fulfilled perfectly in Jesus. But here at the Son, again a quotation of Hosea 11.1, seems to speak of, Israel in some ways being called out of, uh, out of Egypt as his son, and then there are further indications of Jesus's identification with the nation of Israel. I think this is a part of Jesus's life that's overlooked. Like Israel as a nation is called out of Egypt, so too Jesus as the only begotten son of God is called out of Egypt. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is driven into the wilderness and tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. You may remember that Satan comes there and offers Jesus in his fasting bread. And Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And various other temptations come before the Lord, but he exits the wilderness in that 40 days of fasting victorious. This parallels, in my estimation, the 40 years of wilderness wandering that was undertaken by the people of Israel. You may likewise remember the book of Exodus that the Israelites quite often failed in the wilderness. Unlike Jesus, who comes out of that 40-day experience victorious, the children of Israel in that 40 years, at least the older part of that generation, was forbidden any access to the promised land whatsoever for their unbelief and for their disobedience. There are a number of ways along the way in Matthew's gospel that, that Jesus is identified with Israel as a nation. Here's what I think the point is. It's not just that Jesus, in the fulfillment of the righteous requirement of the law, did what you haven't done, did what I haven't done, for that matter, did what we could not do because of the curse of Adam and our sinful nature. Jesus did what we as individuals could not do. It's more than that. Jesus has done, in his perfect righteousness, what an entire nation could not manage to get done, even over all the hundreds of years of history of God dealing with and interacting with the people of Israel. What God, Jesus has now come to do in absolute perfection, and unlike the nation of Israel, he has not failed in this effort to bring about, to shed abroad the glory of God in all the world. Now, there is this... Christian and Jew thing that's going on in the Gospel of Matthew, and and there is this identification of Jesus with Old Testament expectation and fulfillment in the Gospel of Matthew, and then there's this other feature that serves those purposes. Mark and Luke and John tend to say a lot about Jesus. In those Gospels, we hear about Jesus, But in Matthew's gospel, we are far more likely to hear from Jesus. There are five major discourses in the gospel of Matthew where we hear directly from Jesus. It's not that he doesn't teach in the other gospels. Clearly, Jesus is quoted often in Mark, Luke, and John, but never so much as in the gospel of Matthew. And there are even some that see connections between the fact that Jesus gives five substantial discourses and the content of those discourses. The suggestion is that those parallel the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And there's some balance in the content that is provided in those books of Moses as well. In other words, He's providing an exposition, an explanation as to how we now live on this side of the new covenant. What had for so long been hoped for was now coming to pass. pass, How now shall we live in light of the coming of the Messiah? And Jesus accounts for that in a variety of ways in five great discourses. The best known of these is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, begins with the Beatitudes. We won't read all of the content or even much of the content of the Sermon on the Mount, but the gist is this. God's moral standard for us is incredibly high. In fact, it is so high, we cannot in our power meet that standard. I think a big part of the Sermon on the Mount is to demonstrate for us the depth of our depravity And how significant our need for grace and mercy and forgiveness truly is. Because Jesus just takes ten commandments, right? That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. He just takes ten commandments and he just shoves them deep down into our heart and puts a great big spotlight on the deep, dark cracks and crevices that we like to tuck away our sinfulness and hide. Jesus said, you think you've done something swell because you have not killed anyone. But I say to you that if you harbor animosity or hatred in your heart toward a brother, you have violated the spirit of the command, thou shalt not kill. Now that's a, that's a big one, right? Jesus said, you think you've done something special because you've not violated in your estimation, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you that any man who lusts after a woman in his heart, has violated the spirit and the principle of of one of those Ten Commandments, thou shalt not commit adultery, you are there again guilty. And again and again and again, Jesus is demonstrating our enormous guilt under the weight of the law. With each passage, this seems to be the purpose, the function of the Sermon on the Mount. Even those things that seemed so reasonable, so acceptable in Jesus's day, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And as for one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This is heavy, right? Most of the time when we preach these passages, we're trying to soften in some way the heavy blow this delivers, right? We get tripped up with these kinds of commands, and we're looking for points of balance and wrestling with how this ought to operate in real life. The purpose of Jesus is not to afford us balance in the Sermon on the Mount, but to demonstrate the incredible weight of the law. We are crushed under its weight. We are sinners by birth, and we are sinners by choice. And the sermon itself ends with an invitation. I think the invitation sort of picks up in chapter 7 and verse number 13. Jesus says there's two ways you can go from here. Enter through the narrow gate, for straight is the way and narrow is the gate that leads to life, and there are few that find it. And he warns against going the broad path, the broad road the road that leads to destruction. He notes that there are many that choose to go that way. But from this point forward in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is effectively saying to those listening, you got two choices here. You can either choose the way of life or you can choose the broad road that leads to destruction. And even the illustrations that follow after this idea that there are two directions you can go in life are ways of warning that we choose the right direction. In the next passage, he warns about false prophets. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. The mental image that Jesus is painting here in the concluding verses of the Sermon on the Mount is of a false prophet standing at this crossroads of your life and wooing and inviting you that you would go the way of destruction, and warning you of the inconveniences and the challenges that come along with going the straight way that leads to life. Jesus is warning, do not listen to the false prophets at the crossroads of your life. Examine the fruit in their life, and go the straight way through the narrow gate that leads to life. Do not be enticed by the broad way that leads to destruction. He warns that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, do many miracles in your name? But I will then say to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you lawbreakers. At the crossroads of your life, there will be those false prophets. There will be those who are just flat untruthful about the message of the gospel. And then there will be this category of people Jesus describes in verses 21 through 23 who are altogether unaware of their spiritual condition. I like to point out from time to time that there is a worse fate than dying and going to hell. It is to die and to go to hell believing all the while that you are on a course charted for heaven. That's the experience of those described in Matthew seven twenty-one through 23. And then he warns in verse 24, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man who builds his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house and it collapsed and its collapse was great. This final illustration is a word of warning against those who are unprepared. One day the flood is going to come and you'll be found either to have built your house on the rock that is the gospel of Jesus Christ or on the shifting sand of the things of this world. Invariably for both houses the flood comes. What's to, be, what's to be found or the, the outcome of that is going to be determined on the basis of, of what manner of house you've built upon what kind of foundation you've elected to build your home. This is a sermon focused on our sinfulness and the need to come away from our sin and find the rescue that we can only find in Jesus. The second major teaching section, and we don't have time to go through all of these, but the second major teaching section is the commissioning of the twelve, in chapter 10. The third major teaching section is the kingdom parables in chapter 13. The fourth major teaching section from Jesus is on church life in chapter 18. And then there is what is referred to as the Olivet Discourse in chapters 24 and 25. Just for the sake of introducing ourselves to Matthew 24 and 25 and the Olivet Discourse, let's turn there for just a moment. Let's see how much trouble I can create in the last five minutes of our time together. How about that? Matthew 24, verse 1, this is what the Bible says. As Jesus left and was going out of the temple complex, his disciples came up and called his attention to the temple buildings. Then he replied to them, Don't you see all these things? I assure you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. Jesus is the new temple. And then in verse 3, the Bible says, while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, tell us when will these things happen, and what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now this is that end times passage, right? I will say to you, I think there is, and you probably picked this up on Sunday mornings in our treatment of the Revelation there is far too much fixation on the mechanics of the last days to the neglect of really relishing the reality that a day is coming when the eastern sky splits and you see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory to cleanse and claim his church and to service justice in all the world, vindicating the blood of every saint who's ever given their life to see the gospel of Jesus Christ advanced in all the world. The reason I know that there's broad spread misunderstanding of the second coming of Christ and that the treatment of this doctrine is so lopsided at times is that the majority of people that I talk with with regards to the coming of Christ are for the most part fearful of the coming of Christ, which is an emotional response to the promise of Jesus's return that was never intended nor ever experienced in the early church. When there is conversation in the New Testament of the return of Jesus, there is not fear and trepidation on the part of the church. There is joy and elation. And any system of understanding the last days that conjures fear in your heart is removed from the teaching of the Bible. In all likelihood, the product of good cultural imagination, but very distant from the actual teaching of the Scripture. Now, one of the things I like to point out in Matthew 24 is that if you, if you want to understand these things that have so intrigued the minds of Christians for so long— All you need to do is plainly read the Bible. Can I be so forward as to just say, and this is not a shot at anybody, y'all don't misinterpret this. You don't need the left behind series to understand what the Bible says about the return of Jesus. You just need to read the Bible. So I'll stir a little controversy here before we dismiss, how about that? Jesus speaks In Matthew 24, and verse number 15, these words, When you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. We'll dive into that in the coming weeks in our Revelation study. But when you see the abomination of desolation, this terminology is appropriated elsewhere to indicate that he has reference here to the idea of the Antichrist coming. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop mustn't come down to get things from his house. A man in the field must not go back to get his clothes. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your escape may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for at that time there'll be great tribulation, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Unless those days were limited, no one would survive. But those days will be limited because of... The elect. Now, he's speaking here of, of what is referred to as the tribulation. And he even goes further to speak of great tribulation in the same passage, in, in sort of sequence here. Now, look at verse 29. This is just a plain reading of Matthew 24. Immediately, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, And the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the celestial powers will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So, I would ask you, rhetorically, don't answer. What does Jesus say with regards to the last days? What does it look like? I'm, I'm, well, here's what I'm needling at. I'm needling at this incredibly popular approach to understanding the last days, and incredibly popular in America, but exclusively in America, that we are going to be afforded escape from tribulation in the last days. But I would have you to note again that Jesus says in Matthew 29 that immediately after the tribulation of those days, verse 30, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of great glory. What I'm suggesting to you is that the understanding of biblical doctrine that can often be derived from popular culture is often removed from the biblical reality, and you must evaluate as good Bereans what you are customarily taught or have come to be impressed by over time against the teaching of the scripture. What I'm advocating for is a plain reading of Matthew chapter 24, as you set in your mind what the last days might look like for you, and a word of warning that there should be any expectation for us whatsoever that we will somehow forego any difficulty or hardship in this life. I would remind you of the message of the Apostle Paul to those churches that were planted on the first missionary journey. Through much suffering and tribulation must you enter the kingdom of heaven. And I would have you to note that the reason this period of time in human history is referred to as the tribulation is because tribulation is the experience of the church not necessarily the world but the experience of the church That's brother wade's attempt at a little rabble rousing here at the end of our wednesday night time and i get that there can be differences in agreement and obviously this is not a primary doctrinal issue that would create the parting of ways and i would hope not even a great deal of frustration. But I I think that this is a significant enough issue that we would take note of our frequent unwillingness to suffer much for the cause of Christ. And we'll highlight Sunday morning the call of Jesus to the church at Smyrna, that we be faithful unto death, for this is the way the kingdom of Jesus advances in all the earth.